According to a new report from the Cook County Tax Assessor, the Board of Review has largely reversed moves by his office to shift the tax burden from homeowners to businesses, which means shifting the burden back to homeowners. And Crane's commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker joins the podcast to look back and offer analysis of the commercial real estate sector in 2020 and to lay out what he'll be watching closely in the year ahead. It's what what real moves companies are making regarding their office space. You know, wh- when do they return in greater numbers and and What do they learn about how much space they really need? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Wednesday, January 6th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Cranes reporter Danny Ecker here to take a look back at 2020 and look ahead to 2021. So, I mean, definitely a lot of things happen on the commercial real estate beat, but what are some of the big narratives that emerged this year? Oh, well, where to begin? I mean, you know, we started with actually quite a bit of momentum when you think about it. I mean, the office market was coming off of its best year since 2007. Companies were still adding office space downtown in anticipation of big hiring sprees. Google was just days away from finalizing a deal to build an entirely new building in Fulton Market next to their current one. Uh, right before the pandemic shut things down. Um, on the hotel side, the hotels were primed for a pretty strong year uh, with a good convention calendar. Things were looking pretty good earlier in the year, and then the world turned upside down. Hotels were probably the worst hit property sector overall. I mean, maybe one in 1A with retail. You know, hotel performance metrics in the city had been pretty strong, uh, though they had plateaued to some degree over the past couple of years because of so much new supply. Then mid-March comes and we saw some hotels start to cease operations. And by the end of March, only one out of every 10 open hotel rooms downtown was occupied. And since then, we've slowly regained occupancy, but it hasn't been higher than 27% for any week. Um, We're normally in the low 70s on average for the year. You know, for hotels, big cities that rely on corporate and group business have fared the worst here. And that's us. Uh, you know, and it's and it's all about McCormick Place and group business. I mean, we have close to 47,000 hotel rooms downtown. It's about 30% more than we had 10 years ago. The reason that so many of these rooms can survive is partly because of the growth in leisure travel, but mostly because of two things. One, there's conventions and trade shows at McCormick Place, and two is business travel. You know, with so many companies moving downtown over the past decade, They've brought a lot of business travelers in for meetings. And so what's going to happen to that, right? I mean, will business travel ever be as strong as it was? Can companies accomplish more now using digital tools? I mean, most people you talk to believe that's the case. Airlines have said as much. And that's really concerning for hotel owners uh, and and for McCormick Place, too. I mean, there's no question that people want to meet in person again. Um, Networking is the primary goal for some of these meetings. But, you know, what if just 10% of the business goes away because it can be done online or people can attend fewer conferences in person? I mean, that could have a profound impact on 
the survival of a lot of downtown hotels and the distress is already showing. You've got the Palmer House uh, facing a $338 million foreclosure lawsuit. There are likely more disputes like that coming. You know, lenders are the ones facing a tough decision. Do we forge ahead and take back a hotel through foreclosure if the owner has defaulted on their loan? Or do we try to strike a deal to maybe add missed payments onto the end of a loan term? You know, it's all about how they feel the recovery will look. Uh, some think there's going to be a flood of demand, people who want to travel again, and, you know, we've got this new roaring 20s ahead in hospitality. That could be the case, but the question is how long will that take? How long will it last? And again, will leisure demand be enough to keep rates up? I mean, these are questions that are crucial to the health of the hotel market, and they need to be answered here as we get into 2021. Certainly. I, I think there's so many questions about, about behavior that you really kind of hit on when, when you were talking about, about conventions and are things, even if we lose a fraction of that because things shift online, what does that mean for the bottom line? You know, I, I can't help but wonder the same thing about office space as we're seeing sublease numbers, uh, the sublease market numbers kind of go up and, and what a stark comparison this end of the year as opposed to the beginning of the year for office space. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this isn't just a question of when, like it is for hotels with, with, with demand. You know, people travel again. But the office market, I mean, this is, this is an existential crisis for, for some portion of the office market. You know, COVID has raised questions about the role of physical workspace. Do you need as much office space as you used to? You know, what's the purpose of your office in terms of collaboration and culture and innovation and... What types of jobs can be done remotely more frequently? I mean, there, there's still so much to be answered right now on the office front. You know, companies haven't been making decisions if they don't have to. They can, you know, extend a lease if they have to or just buy themselves some time until they have some more clarity. You know, we don't know what is for now and what is for good. You know, will companies allow more people to work from home more frequently and will that last? But here's what we do know. Uh, vacancy is up already at its highest mark since 2011. And there's a lot of new supply still to come. We have uh, five and a half million square feet of offices under construction right now downtown. Only 36% of that has been pre-leased. You think of BMO Tower next to Union Station and Salesforce Tower at Wolf Point, uh, the upper floors of the Macy's Building and Fulton Market. There's a lot of offices that are coming online. And in the meantime, you've got companies that have been indicating that they want less space. There's this huge sublease surge. Uh, like you mentioned, I mean, 5.3 million square feet of sublease space. That's almost double what there was a year ago. Uh, it's the highest number as a percentage of inventory that's, that CBRE, the brokerage, has ever tracked downtown. Um, you know, and it's also the type of companies that's concerning. You know, tech was the big driver of downtown office demand before the pandemic. And now you have some really big tech names trying to shed space on the sublease market. Facebook, Uber, Glassdoor, Groupon. Cars.com. There's lots of others. You know, is that a harbinger of what's ahead? Uh, and, and you know, the idea of kind of having the, the, the haves and have nots in the downtown office market. I mean, this is going to be a far more competitive market after the pandemic than it was before. And for some landlords, that could mean potentially having to hand over the keys to lenders or, or sell at a significant loss or recapitalizing properties or simply having to offer a lot more free rent and cash up front to tenants to get them in the door. You know, and, and then the bigger question, I suppose, is what's the fallout for the loop and the vibrancy of downtown overall from that? You know, again, like I, the example, the hypothetical with hotels, what if 10% of the foot traffic 
that was downtown every day before is gone for good. You know, what happens to restaurants and other businesses in certain parts of downtown? Uh, these are real imminent questions that, you know, we might get some answers to in 2021 and it, it could be pretty ugly. Another thing I feel like we talked about a lot last year and early this year was mega projects and just all the time and effort and funding being poured into those. Those really took kind of a back burner this year, uh, conversation-wise anyway, because we were focusing on on hotels and, and, and offices and all of that. But where where do those, some of those big projects stand in the city now? So we, there were three big ones that we've you know, that have got a lot of the attention this year, Lincoln Yards from Sterling Bay on the north side, and then you got the 78 from related Midwest on the near south side, and uh, also the Michael Reese Hospital site um, near McCormick Place. You know, there's, there's a, there were kind of some small victories, I think, for, for all of them this year. I mean, they started off the year very hungry, looking for anchor tenants to kind of kickstart their projects, and uh, they, they got a, a few wins. I mean, the 78 was probably the the you know, most high, the highest profile boost, um, the state released money that will be used to develop the discovery partners Institute earlier in the year. That's effectively a U of I, uh, you know, classroom and lab space building a 500,000 square foot building. That would be the effectively the anchor tenant for the project. Uh, but we're still waiting to hear on, you know, when that will break ground, uh, when it would potentially open. I mean, it's still uh, quite a ways away before something like that is up and running. Um, the Michael Reese site got their first anchor tenant. There's a coalition of developers um, that were the city tap for that because the city member owns this site because they it bought it uh, several years back as a potential uh, site of the Olympic Village if Chicago had won the Olympics. Um, the the news for the Michael Reese site this year was uh, they struck a partnership with the Sheba Medical Center in Israel to create what they're calling the Ark Innovation Center. It's going to be um, just a, a kind of a life sciences focused uh, big big project on the southern portion of the site, but there's still lots of questions to answer there about infrastructure and when work would begin. Um, I mean, these are projects; these mega projects happen over a decade or more, so you know it's early steps. And then Lincoln Yards with Sterling Bay, there wasn't much news there this year. Um, they're going to start working on a bridge, they say, that runs through the heart of the project next year to you know focus on that infrastructure because it's really hard to get around the site and, and really to it. Um, they, they did say they see a big opportunity in life sciences. I mean, that's been a common thread throughout the market is, you know, there's there's a lot of um, life sciences, uh, biotech and pharmaceutical companies that are born here that usually go elsewhere when they want to grow. Sterling Bay is one of the developers that's really uh, betting that they can develop the, I mean, very costly, but but uh, valuable space to house these companies. And hopefully they can build a uh, an environment and, and maybe house that at Lincoln Yard. So, I mean, all these mega projects, if you if you kind of paint them with a broad brush, I mean, they're all, you could call them all risky right now. I mean, you could have said that before, um, but you could also say it's a great opportunity to kind of have a blank slate. You know, if you're going to design something for the post-pandemic world um, and the way that people may get around in the future, I mean, we still don't know exactly how that's all going to play out, but, you know, it, it's it raises interesting questions that you would, you know, if had they started down the path developing certain aspects of it and then had things upended by COVID, you might have said that would have been a worse position then. So uh, it's it's a very uh, interesting prospects for all of these projects. And we'll see this year uh, whether the financing and, and tenants, more importantly, um, decide to line up for them. That's right. And and there's so much that seems like it's it on your beat in particular that seems like it's just kind of up in the air. We have to just wait and see 
what office space is going to look like after this. We have to kind of wait and see what tourism and hotels and conventions look like. There's a lot of wait and see. So given that, what are you going to be watching most closely in 2021, at least at the beginning of 2021? It's what what real moves companies are making regarding their office space. You know, wh- when do they return in greater numbers and, and what do they learn about how much space they really need? You know, so far it's been a total guessing game. Um you know, I'm also watching the suburbs. I, I think that's kind of a really compelling topic that was, I mean, that was before the pandemic, but now, you know, there's a whole narrative around, do the suburbs actually get a nice boost from this? We've obviously seen this year, this accelerated millennial migration to the suburbs, um, you know, in terms of where they want to live um, just for space reasons and getting out of the city during COVID. Does that translate to a lift for you know, offices in the suburbs and uh, retail space or hotels and other uh, commercial properties in the suburbs. We don't really know yet. I mean, so far the numbers don't support that. But again, we're, we're really still stuck in, in COVID world. Um, so I'm watching that closely. And then, you know, on the hotel front, uh, which which downtown hotels are going to survive this? You know, um, when will we stop seeing events canceled at McCormick Place? I mean, they're still being canceled. We're, we're into events that were as far as uh, this summer, this, the summer of 2021 that have been canceled. So until that happens, until we start saying, seeing a, event organizers say, yep, we're still on, we're going to get back together. You know, until that happens, the hotel market can't really begin its road to recovery. So um, those are the things I'm watching. I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's all kinds of other little sub stories within them. I mean, the, what, what's, what's going to come of co-working? I mean, we've talked so much about that. You know, do we see some near-term uh, companies gravitating to the flexible office space, even though they'd be sharing it with people that they may not know how comfortable are people with that. Um, and Fulton Market, I mean, I, you and I have obviously talked a lot over the last couple of years about Fulton Market and the boom there. And, you know, there's a lot of office space coming there and it's expensive, at least what the developers expected they'd get in terms of rents. Um, you know, will that bounce back? Uh, and will it be the same? Um, you know, that's, that's a, uh, one of the areas of the city that was really growing, um, growing quickly and generating a lot of new tax income for the, for the city. Uh, so can that continue at momentum? Uh, and, and how soon will that happen? There's a ton to watch on your beat. Yeah. You're going to have a busy year, I think. Well, we will all be sure to follow your reporting as the year unfolds. Thanks so much, Danny. Appreciate your time. All right, Amy. Thanks a lot. Coming up, the value gap for black homeowners as compared to the market overall is bigger in Chicago than in other major U.S. cities. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. A new report issued by Cook County Assessor Fritz Kage indicates that effort to shift much of the property tax burden in Cook County's north and northwest suburbs away from homeowners and onto commercial properties was largely undone by the Board of Review. You can read the report for yourself at chicagobusiness.com, but the gist is that it says billions of dollars in higher assessments that Kage wanted to impose on business properties were reversed by appeals to the board, which legally does have the power to overrule Kage. 
That means that the tens of millions of dollars a year in taxes involved instead will be paid by homeowners, not commercial owners like apartment developers and shopping mall operators and so on. News of this shift has been developing for several months, as reported by Cranes, since Kagi first took office after unseating then-incumbent Joe Berrios with a promise to reform the property tax system. And this report provides the first fact-based look at Kagi's work. The report looks specifically at the final figures for tax year 2019 in the north area of Cook County, covering 13 suburbs, and is the first area to be reassessed since Kagi took office. And in each one of said suburbs, Kagi proposed to increase the share of the total tax load on commercial properties, usually by at least six or seven percentage points. But in every township, most of that was reversed. For instance, in Barrington, Kagi proposed to up the share of non-residential properties collectively from 34% to a total of 51 meaning a shift of about $217 million. But according to the report, the board reversed the shift and cut another $3 million. Similarly, in Evanston, the commercial share evaluation went from $600 million proposed by Kagi to $402 million by the board. In Schaumburg Township, Kagi's proposed $1.32 billion in non-residential assessments became $942 million. And indeed, those are a lot of numbers for a podcast. But overall, according to Kagi's office, the more than $10 billion in property valuation that he proposed for non-residential properties was reduced to just over $7 billion. And that means the actual tax bills will have to be levied on the remaining valuation, most of it, according to Kagi's spokesperson Scott Smith, moving to, quote, residential property owners. He continued by telling Crane's political columnist Greg Hines the board's action, quote, significantly reduced the potential tax burden on commercial owners. He also said Kagi released the report because taxpayers have a right to transparency, saying Kagi has one view of what commercial property property is worth, but the board, quote, saw it differently. Amazon is buying 11 used Boeing 767 planes, the first time the company has bought, as opposed to leased, aircraft for its rapidly expanding air cargo operation. The company said it's buying seven planes from Delta and four from WestJet. The WestJet planes are being converted from passenger to cargo and will join Amazon's fleet this year. The Delta ones will start flying Amazon routes in 2022. By the end of next year, an Amazon spokesperson said the company expects to have more than 85 planes in service. A report last year by DePaul University estimated that Amazon's fleet would likely grow to 200 planes in the coming years, rivaling UPS size-wise. At the moment, Amazon operates mostly from smaller regional airports close to its warehouses, routing packages between locations to make for quick delivery to customers. Macy's is closing its longtime store in the Mag Mile at Water Tower Place, a high-profile blow to the city's premier shopping area amid deep impacts to the retail sector due to the pandemic. Cranes reported in August that the chain was looking for an out from its 170,000-square-foot store at Water Tower after triggering a one-year opt-out clause in its lease in early 2020. And the closing is part of the fallout at malls and shopping centers as an increase in online shopping has hit brick-and-mortar stores hard, especially large department stores. Revenue at Macy's Mag Mile location fell from $85 million in 2014 to $54 million in 2019, according to an industry source. And with similar issues at several of its stores, Macy's said in February 2020 that it would close 125 stores over a three-year period. Water Tower Place is owned by Bermuda-based Brookfield Property Partners, which is the second largest mall owner in the U.S., just behind Simon Property Group. 
The gap between the value of Chicago area homes overall and the value of homes owned by black homeowners is bigger in Chicago than in any of the other 10 largest U.S. metro areas. That according to a new report from online real estate marketplace Zillow. Among the implications of the gap is one that's playing out right now as Chicago area home values are going up faster than they have in years. A senior economist at Zillow told Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin that black homeowners in lower valued homes, quote, aren't as able to capture the benefits of the increase from these good times in the housing market. According to the report, generally speaking, black-owned homes in the Chicago area are worth about 37 percent less than homes in the market overall, according to the report. And that's by far the widest gap in any of the nation's biggest cities. The second widest gap is in Philly, where homes owned by black homeowners are worth about 23% less than the overall market. Pulling back to a nationwide scale, the report also says that homes owned by black homeowners are worth 16% less than the overall market. And to put that in perspective, Chicago's gap is more than twice that. The Zillow senior economist who spoke with Crane said a lot of that can be attributed to Chicago's widely known history of segregation. And although fair housing laws and lending standards are in place, black households continue to suffer financially from the impact of disinvestment. A 2020 report on the state of housing in black America showed that the growth in black-owned homes value consistently lagged behind white-owned homes value between 1998 and 2018. To get into a few more numbers from this reporting, for Latino homeowners in the Chicago area, Typical homes are valued at more than 16% below the overall market, according to the report, compared with a 10% gap nationwide. Chicago-area homes owned by non-Hispanic white homeowners are typically worth 8% more than the market overall and nationwide about 3% more. And homes owned by Asian homeowners in the Chicago area are worth about 11% more than the general market, compared with 3.7% more nationwide. Find more in-depth reporting about this story, as well as many others, at chicagobusiness.com. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's commercial real estate reporter, Danny Ecker. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.